Welcome back to another episode of GSA Does That. I'm your host, Rob Trubia, and we have a real treat for you today. In our 10th episode, we're talking about something that affects each and every one of us, whether we realize it or not, federal architecture. And we have two absolutely amazing guests to educate us. First up is Chuck Hardy's GSA's very own chief architect. Chuck will shed light on how he and his team make sure federal buildings are not just functional and green, but also stunning. We'll dig into how these buildings are not just workplaces, but actually important parts of our communities. We'll also discuss the art that graces these buildings and the role that landscape design has in enhancing the spaces outside of our federal buildings. Our second guest is Carol Ross Barney, the Chicago-based architectural legend and recipient of the 2023 American Institute of Architects Gold Medal. Carol's portfolio just happens to include the Oklahoma City Federal Building. She's built an impressive career crafting public spaces that elevate our everyday lives. From her philosophies on design to her views on the future of federal architecture, you won't want to miss a second of what she has to say. So if you've ever looked at one of our federal buildings and wondered how it got to be that way or what thought went into its creation, stick around. I think you're going to love this episode. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I wondered if you might share a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and maybe how did you become an architect? All right. Uh, Thanks for having me today and uh, some great questions to kick this in. Uh, I I grew up in the Midwest, uh, although born out in Denver, Uh, lived in uh, outside of Detroit, Michigan for a while, moved to Wisconsin uh, in Racine, kind of hollow Frank Lloyd Wright and some great architecture college up in Minnesota. So I, I've just been uh, bouncing around the Midwest for, for most of my life. Went to college uh, up in Minnesota through a ROTC scholarship for uh, for architecture, actually, and uh, and got into that by way of an interest in design and, and, and the built environment. It just always intrigued me, and that's why I got into it. I graduated from uh, college and went to the Air Force and the Air Force goes, it was always the needs of the Air Force, which was intelligence officers were needed at the time I graduated. So I, I became an Air Force intelligence officer and not an architect, even though that's what my degree was for. And that's why I got the scholarship I got. Uh, but that caused me to go out and get a second job while I was working full-time for the Air Force. I got a full-time job as an architect down in Florida uh, and uh, was able to do some academic architecture work, some uh developer work, some houses and things like that. So I really got experience in the industry and got licensed while I was in Florida while serving in the military and, and doing a side job as an architect full time. Didn't get a lot of sleep those years, but it was a lot, a lot of good experience. Yeah, you sounded motivated for sure. Yeah, and from that, just got uh, stayed with the program. I uh, got some private sector jobs and worked on the outside and then uh, saw an advertisement for a government architect, which piqued my curiosity to what does that do or what does that mean? And uh, had an interview, had some conversations and uh, looked looked like it was fun and it's been fun for these last 30 years or so. It seems like it's sort of worked out for you. It has, it has. So you're the chief architect of GSA. Can you share with us some of your core responsibilities in that amazing role? Yeah, under uh, the chief architect, uh, we have a lot of subject matter expertise in a bunch of different environments. So we, we have architectural design excellence, of course. Uh, design excellence was established back in 1994, and so that's one of our, our core core elements. But we also have engineering under us, and, and we're our own code authority, which most people don't know. So we do follow most uh, current codes and, and try to work with the localities on their codes. Uh, but it, it's a it's a heavy lift on engineering, making sure we're doing things right. But we're also driving change in the industry with uh, our engineering folks and 
uh, low embodied carbon concrete specifications and more sustainable asphalt. A lot of things are doing on it. Makes that a real cool operation. And then fine arts falls under my group. Uh, we've got 27,000 pieces of art in the fine arts collection. Uh, the oldest works, uh, I go back to the 1850s. Uh, newest works were installed this year. Uh, we're on our 50th anniversary, which you might have heard about. <laughs> Uh, but really, uh, really fun stuff, really cool stuff uh, from the art side. Historic, we've got 500 historic buildings, so I, I'm also overseer of the historic properties that we own. We, host, we ha uh, house about 40% of the uh, square footage of our own building, those 500 buildings. Uh, and those buildings are in communities, so I've got urban planning under me. Uh, and we have more than 8,500 facilities, and we have more than 2,000 communities. So. Uh, pretty, we're, we're not only uh, wide, but we're deep as well. And so it's uh, making sure that the waters remain calm and that we're really uh, leaving places better than we uh, arrive and make sure we're taking care of the communities we're in. Get them in uh, federal co-working and workplace uh, initiatives that are all uh, up in the in the forefront of conversations nowadays that also falls under my purview. So all those pieces come together as the Office of Architecture and Engineering, which uh, myself as a chief architect is overseeing, but, uh, all really great stuff. Wow. That is a lot, a lot of cool stuff. That's really pretty, pretty exciting. Well, Chuck, when people think federal architecture, I'm sure they probably think a lot about, you know, our capital, Washington, DC. Can you educate us a little bit about federal architecture in the last hundred plus years? So what are we seeing in DC and what are we seeing throughout the nation when it comes to federal buildings? Architecture uh, over the years, and, and not just federal architecture, architecture in general, uh, comes from the profession to people, uh, and it creates a vocabulary or a language so it's familiar and understandable. But when you see something, uh, people actually get it, and, and the, the non-architects in the world are, oh yeah, it makes sense. And, and the more you see of certain things, uh, the more familiar they become. And over time, uh, it's probably been. 16 or 17 different styles uh, that have come and gone. Uh, there, there was classical early on, but that was, you know, replaced by Byzantine and Romanesque. And then you had the Gothics, which was asymmetrical uh, and, and different than the ordered classical. And then that went on to the, uh, the Renaissance, which is working back classical. And uh, then from that to Baroque and Art Nouveau and neoclassicism all the way up to postmodernist. And today, which some are calling uh, parametricism, which is really taking technology to a new level. And um, one thing, you know, I heard a quote recently that uh, someone said the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. It's because we had improved technology and improved processes. And I think architecture is the same way. Is the technology we have today allows us to do greater things with structures, with, with volumes, with surfaces and shapes. And how do you take advantage of that in a meaningful way? Don't just do it because you can do it, because we got it here to school tool we can use, but do it in a meaningful way. And, and, and that's really, I think, as architecture has moved through the ages, it's always trying to take advantage and to push society a little more further. Uh, you have one of my, uh, I think a lot of people's favorite project is Brunelleschi's Dome in the Santa Maria del Fiore building. It was done in 1420. Uh, took 16 years to build, uh, and then you could add on another 10 to that uh, when they had decided to add a lantern on top of it. So I had 26 years of a construction project, but it is still uh, the tallest brick dome in the built in the world, 
and it's been the widest vault in the world until the 20th century. This is something that was done in 1420. Uh, and, and so when you look at that inspiration, you look at the challenges, uh, as we're designing buildings today and doing things, it's like, how can I have, how can this project have that kind of impact and move an industry in a way that, that, uh, needs that moving? Yeah, I guess when an architect designs a building, particularly a federal building, a building for the public, they're trying to think, how can this have a lasting impact and really uphold, you know, American values and make people feel good when they walk by it, when they come in it. And it continues to sort of build its its interest and love. I mean, public buildings have such a symbolic value for the public. What does good architecture do for the American public, particularly when it comes to a federal building? I think that that term of federal presence is is, is there. It it, it does. Uh, architect is best. Is, it should be comforting. Truvius, who was a Roman architect back in, in one BC. And the same question posed to him from Augustus Caesar said, how do you know architecture is successful? And his answer was, uh, firmness, commodity is light and, and firmness is it's structurally sound. It's going to, it's going to last the ages. Commodity is actually serving a purpose. There's a need, a business need or a, or a community need of why I'm building this building. And then finally the light, it has to be pleasing to the eye and, and, and be able to, uh, actually serve a greater good. So you have those three pieces and I think federal architecture needs that and does that effectively, uh, you, you, you get success. Uh, we certainly, when we do our projects, we're bringing jobs to town, we're enabling missions and things like that. And they'll all feed into those very core ideas of firmness, commodity, and delight. So it sounds like a lot of styles of architecture can do what you're talking about. Yes. There is no one size fits all. Let's, let's go do this and, and, and make it happen. Uh, again, as, as I mentioned over the years, everything from ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian all the way up to postmodernism and, and, and modernists and, and Renaissance and neoclassicism, it's, it's evolving and it needs to evolve because if, if we do get stagnation, uh, it starts to, starts to do things it shouldn't do. Again, back to that vocabulary language, there's a meaning behind it. I'll quote Yogi Berra now, if you can't imitate them, don't copy them. Uh, and, and that gets to the point of you really got to understand why, why things are done the way they're done. Architecture is, is meant to inspire and meant to do great things in different ways, but it all goes back to some of the very basic principles of architecture that was probably, uh, talked about around the, the campfires in 1BC that the architects are talking today. I'm curious. So the Eisenhower Executive Office Building has always caught my attention when I come to D.C. It's sitting right next to the White House. It's a very interesting building. I think it's really interest, beautiful, really. But I think from what I understand from my little bit of research that I could do on that was it initially was really highly criticized. What type of architecture is that? And why do you think now it's really become a city landmark? I mean, people like that building. It is Beaux Arts, and and that is the uh, ornamentation you see on that building, and 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 that was part of maybe uh, the driver around brutalist architecture in the federal government is there's this uh, sense that we don't want to be unduly ornamented and spending money on things we shouldn't, and we shouldn't. But uh, what Design Excellence has kind of raised and brought to the forefront is we can make a building look good or bad for the same cost. So, so why don't we make these buildings uh, delight, as, as Vitruvius would say? Um, and, and so when you look at some of those buildings and you look at the time some of these buildings take to uh, 
safety put in place, the cost of building safety to put in place, there, there does come that, that challenge. Uh, we're probably no better or worse in, in cost and time of construction as we were back in the day. Probably some things go faster, but it, it, we're, we're losing some craft labor. So if we get and try to do, if we try to build the past, sometimes we're just building meretricious moments where they're great codec, uh, great for a photograph, but not necessarily functional for what you're trying to do. Would you say that the big challenge today in government buildings, government architecture, I mean, we're talking about being sustainable. We're talking about being green. These buildings, though, they need to be functional. People need to work there every day. And at the same time, they are, you know, landmarks. They are to lift up the public and have that sense of, of pride. What's the big challenge in today's environment of architecture for the federal government? It, it's a huge challenge across the board because the the more uh, ability we gain over time with technology and tools and materials, uh, the more choices you have and the more things you can do. And if, if you're solely focused on the aesthetic and the building, how does it look from the outside as a piece of art in, in a town or a city or a community? Uh, I think you're losing uh, that, that commodity piece of why we're in this business. Uh, and, but you can't forget it. Uh, it's just like, uh, you know, coffee in a cup. You want your coffee to taste good, but you don't want, you also want to make sure that you're drinking out of something that at least looks uh, something you want to be drinking out of. Uh, and, and buildings are the same way is they have to function. They have to be meaningful. They have to, uh, excite and energize people going to them. And even in today's environment, we're talking about return to the office and things like that is you, you want to be inspired by your workplace. You want to be inspired by your buildings. It's always great when I walk around, whether it's Chicago, which is a great architectural town or DC, people just walking around rocking around with their head looking up in the air at the buildings and, and appreciating their environment. And that's that's really, I, I think, the challenge of our federal architecture is to how do we create that federal presence in, in the community? How do we serve the community? But how, how do we also inspire just the person walking by the stocking on the building? The, 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 that's a great building, and, uh, and I'm glad the federal government did that for our community. What about the sustainability piece, the green piece? How much of that affects the design of the building it, it, it affects it a lot and i think it's affecting it more as people are becoming more aware of the conversation uh when you do a design you really have to take that into account from from the beginning the other pieces are just driving uh, project teams driving architect driving our contractor community to think beyond what they've done in the past to what's the are possible on some of these projects for sustainability. Yeah, we've already always done it that way, but what if we did it this way? Would that help and what would it serve? So it's challenging people to continually innovate. Uh, architects by nature are creatives, and so you've got uh, a lot of folks coming in with a lot of ideas, but businesses are businesses, and we have time and schedule and money in place, and so you have to somehow make sure that you integrate those two conversations, that this is a great idea that we can still accomplish within the constraints you have. And it's going to take maybe one step forward, maybe a huge leap forward. But that's, that's how I, I think we as the government serve. Uh, the other thing on the sustainability side, and this is, this is across pretty much all the uh, aspects of construction and design, the government has a unique superpower of the power to convene. We can bring disparate parties together to say, let's talk about this problem and figure out ways to solve this problem. 
we can bring architects and contractors and lawyers and charities and suppliers all in the same room who typically wouldn't be in the same room to say, let's talk about the greater good here. How can we move industry in a way that's positive? And, and that will help get us to where we need to be on the sustainability side, the, the way we can green our buildings better, do things better, do things smarter. What about renovating historic buildings? I mean, we're taking these beautiful historic buildings. We need to get them more energy efficient. What's that challenge like? Is that is that even harder than building a brand new building? Great question. So the historic buildings are way ahead of their time because if you look at the the windows, the cross ventilation, the solar orientation of our, of, our, of our older buildings, there wasn't a lot of thought put into that. Now it may not have been as uh, technical as bringing up the models we're doing now and the things we're doing, but some of it was intuitive, but a lot of it was in, is very intentional, and so. Uh, I, I always told folks on the workplace side, the, the modern mobile office was back when you had, you know, whether they be oak desks or battleship gray metal desks that you could push around and move to create a project team overnight or in, in, in 30 minutes versus calling in a vendor to retool a system, uh, was a much simpler time, but a much more comfortable time. You had the cross ventilation, you had the layouts and brought daylighting into space. You had a lot of things that were trying to bring back today in both technologically improved ways, but also going back to some of those learnings from earlier days of, of how did that work. And when you get to uh, the historic buildings we have, like I said, we own 500 of them, that's all embodied carbon. We've, we've already spent that carbon, we've already got that asset in place, so how do you make it useful? And some things, I, I think, we are reborn in different ways. If you think of, for those that are old enough to remember phone booths and and pay phones in every building and every lobby, uh, in our older buildings, those didn't go away. But now you've got companies coming out with, in essence, phone booths for Zoom calls and Google calls in the office that plug into the wall. So we're repurposing those kind of booths get back into either, you know, Zoom or Google, Google Meet kind of uh, booths rather than phone booths. So I, I think as we breathe life back into these old structures, we do in such a way that it makes them meaningful again. Uh, and to me, that's part of that timeless architecture. Here's something that's a hundred years old that is functioning as well today and in 2023 as it did back in 1920. Looking beyond buildings, a landscape architecture I find fascinating. Is that under your purview? Is there a landscape project that you can point to that GSA has had something to do with that it's led? Yeah, we have uh, a landscape architect on my staff. There's landscape architects in the regions. And, and landscape architecture is crucial to all of our buildings because that really is uh, the welcome mat to the building and typically the link to our cities. And so we've got everything from just straightforward standard landscape design on a facility to the landscape actually becoming the art on a project, the Rockford Courthouse has a grove of crabapple trees that is the art for that project. So it's not only removing some of that, the absence of the, uh, the canopy in the downtown area, but it's giving that community someplace to actually go sit, be inspired, rest, and, and for those going into the building, which is a courthouse, someplace to kind of may, maybe decompress because by bringing in and combining both landscaping and art up on the front entry of the building, uh, in a way that's meaningful to that community or to that uh, the family that went to the court to court that day, I think does exactly what landscape architecture is supposed to do, and integrates 
with the architecture of the building. And, and to me, the more we can integrate everything, integrate with the communities, integrate landscape architecture in their, into our buildings and architecture, integrate engineering appropriately into architecture, integrating art into architecture, it's really when you supercharge these two bonds. Speaking of art, can you talk to us a little bit about the art and architecture program? I think you said in the top of this conversation, 27,000 pieces of art are under GSA's purview. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. How do you, do you commission new artists or is it really just about taking care of and selecting art that already exists? Good question. Uh, 27,000 pieces of art are art that we own across the country uh, and that, that are in our collection and under our care and under, under our curation, if you will. Uh, any new project, any capital project, one half of 1% goes to what is known as art and architecture. And that goes to our art piece for that, that major capital project separate commission to an artist that is selected from a registry of, of artists that we have uh, in the country. I think there's right now 2,700 artists on that registry. Uh, this last year, uh, we actually got that online, and so anybody can go in and, and get on that registry by submitting uh, the appropriate information and samples. And then we we get a, again, same thing, a selection committee that's made up uh, one of the end users in the building, a couple art professionals, from inside the government, a couple art, uh, uh, an art professional from the community. So we have community representation and they look at that list of, of the artist registry and they, they then pull something in there, not just one, they said they, they look these people are appropriate uh, for the building we're doing. And then they come in and, and have those interviews and conversations with what their visions are for the building and what their visions are for the art piece. And then we work with them to, um, work with the architect the architect on that panel as well so it's that early on integration and conversation of here is how art can help integrate where we're going and trying to get with this holistic solution of the building we're doing um, and then the artist comes on board works with the architect works with the uh the gsa and and does some really great things so we get some really cool architecture around the or around the country to, to look at and do the collection itself is huge and it's meant to be for public viewing. It's not meant to go inside uh, somebody's office where the public can't perish in. So our focus was on taking most pieces of art and making sure they're out in the public purview. Chuck, you've got a really neat job. Can you share with us before we end the conversation, where can listeners go to learn more about the history and design of federal architecture, or maybe learn about what's coming in the future, maybe in their own community? Best place to go is just gsa.gov, and you can get to the design excellence site from there, uh, and that'll that'll link you into our projects. And then locally, we're easy to reach out to. Uh, if you're in a region, talk to your GSA folks. They, they're happy to give you tours and, and reach out to you. They want to show off the, the great things you do and, and the buildings we do. Uh, every building we have has a building manager uh, that, that runs our buildings and, uh, and keeps them going. And so uh, we want to connect with the community. And, and certainly, if, if you're interested in doing with us, doing work with us, uh, that GSA.gov path is the right way to go. This has been really fascinating, interesting, historical. I mean, it's, it's just really neat. So, Chuck, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. Fresh off of what felt like a master's class in federal architecture from Chuck, it's time to welcome the celebrated Carol Ross Barney. Carol, it's an honor to have you with us today. Chuck Hardy was just on with us. Carol, and he had amazing things to say. He really took us to school about federal architecture. We certainly touched on Oklahoma City. Uh, we talked about you a little bit. 
but we're excited to get to know you as a great example of an architect who really understands public spaces and understands what architecture can do for people, for community, and for bringing people together. So thanks for being with us. No, thank you for asking me. Well, Carol, I think we're all curious. What initially drew you to a career in architecture and what continues to fuel your passion for the field today? Well, quite honestly, I am, I'm a, I'm a boomer. I'm a child of the sixties. And so when I was, um, oh man, when I was in eighth grade, John Kennedy was elected president. And I kind of remember that because he was so, I think if you were young at that time, or if you were learning, he was so inspirational and he, um, he challenged you to do the best that you can do. And to me, this was so exciting. And I, I actually thought I would be an artist. I was really good at making things. I really liked making things, drawing, doing that type of thing. And But that stopped me dead in my tracks because I thought, well, how am I going to save the world by, by making things and drawing? It didn't seem like there was a fit there. And I knew that I had to save the world. Um, or I thought I did when I was 14. I thought of architecture all on my own. I thought, well, what can what can people who have these skills, how could they help? And it, um, I, I don't know, it was just a crazy naive thought. And I said, well, maybe I can make better cities. And um, I mean, it was terribly naive. And um, the good news is I've never been disappointed in my career choice. I really, I really do believe that design can change how um, can change people's condition. Yeah, you. That's pretty unique, really, to decide what you want to be in high school, and then have an illustrious career doing it for decades. So, congratulations! That in itself is an accomplishment. I'm still working at it, though. I haven't saved the world yet. We still have a lot of problems. So, but um, I, I've been really happy. I mean, happy is, is this kind of a weird word because it, it's not it's not easy work necessarily mostly because there are a lot of problems in the world and, and they're not solved. Um, but I've always been challenged. I'm really curious about, you're a very philosophical person from what I have read and watched and listened to about you. And architecture and philosophy, I think a lot of people don't think they really go together, but I think they definitely do for you. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the things that I've heard you say about quality of life and architecture and design excellence being a right and not a privilege. Can you flesh that out a little bit for us? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, if you look at who we've become over the, especially I think over the last couple of centuries, people who, um, I was just talking to you about manifestos, people who believe that there shouldn't be equality. And then you look at the environment that we live in. One of the um, probably the most glaring ways um, are, are faults about um, our society is inequality in your your accommodations, the space you occupy. I mean, how can you enjoy your life and and um, add to add to your society if you don't have a decent place to live? Um, you know, environments that um, that penalize people. Just, I mean, they keep they keep us from being who we should be and who we want to be, and that's why that's why I like public work. I mean, um, 
One of my favorite projects that we that we've done, for example, is the River Walk in Chicago. And it it's not because I, I do think I love the design, but and it was really a challenge to do to make a space that works and acts like that. But the thing that I I like the best is um, it has um, an equality about it. It is a public space; anyone can go there, and um, it teaches us how hospitable the city can be, how green it can be, how welcoming it can be, and um, I think it inspires people to make other spaces like that. So um, I see each project as a chance to make something bigger. I really do. And not not me personally. I think it's a chance for people to understand what potential there is to make things um, better, to improve your life quality. Some things are really sort of nuts and bolts. One of the things that I think that, for example, future city planners or city planners today should be more concerned with is what we talk a lot about air quality, but what what about other qualities? What about, um, for example, noise pollution or light pollution? Um, they all affect how you feel about your life, and they all are things that are part of the design of our environment. Some of them, I think, will be existential in the end. If you um, look at, uh, basically, if you look at what people are doing to the planet, we have to stop polluting the planet. I'm working for um, the Adrian Dominicans now. Um, I'm remodeling one high school. Actually, it was my high school. I went to a Dominican high school. And um, one of their tenets is that we have to stop abusing the earth. And at first, I was a little taken aback about uh, using the word abuse and earth in the same sentence. But in a way, um, I think you need strong language right now. We have yeah. to stop abusing the earth. That's why and this is maybe um, why we're talking today, I was so glad to hear that GSA has been able to adapt the Oklahoma City Federal Building, which we did. Oh, man, it was completed in 2004, so it's 20 years old now. Uh, and technology's changed. We know more, and I was so glad to hear that that building was adaptable to be even more um, efficient than it was when it was constructed. And, um, I mean, that's, that's great. That's what that's what I want to happen. I think it's really considered to be a model federal building now for green energy and being retrofitted as well. Yeah, I th that's you know, there are things that we didn't know when we were making that building, and the fact that it could be retro retrofitted and that people wanted to, that's great. It's just amazing. You know, going back to when you designed that building, and and really how you think of it now since then. What was, what was it that you were trying to accomplish when you designed that building? Was there anything in particular that you really wanted to come through in the design of the Oklahoma City Federal Building? You know, for me, Oklahoma City Federal Building was um, almost like a perfect project in some ways because there were so many things that I was interested in that was, that was represented by the project. But I'll start out with the very simple things. One of the reasons my partner, Jim Jankowski, and I went after it is we had never been to Oklahoma. It was on our list of, the, of some of the 50 states we had to visit. At that point, we had not practiced outside of Chicago. Um, but we thought, well, hey, we could, we'll see Oklahoma if we go after this job. And the GSA had um, just started their design and excellence program. Um, Ed Finer, who is one of my patron saints, um, he um, had convinced the, the GSA, convinced the federal government um, that they should pay more attention to the federal design guidelines, which were really based in quality. 
and that you'd find quality by looking at the um, at the talent of the designer, not just the number of buildings they had done. Like, you know, if you do 50 schools and they're all bad, are you a good school designer? <laughs> he said no. So we were really encouraged. We said, oh, you know, we'll be able, we'll be able to. We like that idea. Um, so that was why we went there. But when you think about the project, um, it was really, it was a watershed moment for um, the GSA and for our country. It was the first sort of act of domestic terrorism that the whole country was aware of. And it was by someone, I mean, it was by, by someone who lived among us. And it was something that I think people didn't think could happen. It was, it was a shock. And um, the reaction to that was really complex. On the surface, um, Congress said, well, you know, we're not running away. We're going to rebuild on the site, which is interesting because at that point, there was not a huge office for federal, uh, a huge market for federal office space. So this was a commitment about principle more than it was about economic need. But then there were other there were other reactions um, that followed immediately after the one. The one was well, if we if we fortify this and we make it so it's really strong and we don't have to run away, how does that represent open government? Which is the basic idea behind federal design is that these buildings are for the people, and so um, it, they seem to be conflicting values right there. So whoever was the designer would be challenged by that. And um, we were challenged by that. In fact, um, later on, Ed told us that the reason that they selected us, we had been um, designing schools for really tough um, neighborhoods in Chicago. And um, in a way, the dynamic was the same. You wanted the kids to feel really secure, but you wanted them to feel like they were open, that this was open arms also. And so um, somehow they figured that if we could do that in Chicago, maybe we could make a building that would be defensible but not defensive in Oklahoma City. Um, but it got even deeper. After we got there, so those were the principles. After we got there, it turned out that the, a lot of the same agencies were moving in, not all of them. And for individuals who had been in the building the day it was, um, the day it was attacked, that was terrifying. They didn't want to move back. And um, so some of the first meetings we had were with people who didn't care what we designed. They just didn't want to go back. And um, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you that Ed was a great guy. Um, he suggested that we um, devise a series of meetings, um, basically an engagement with the people who were stakeholders in this building. And they included um, the government of Oklahoma City, you know, City Hall, the mayor, those people. It included, um, obviously, the agency heads who would be leasing the building, but it also included the people who would be moving back into the building. And um, it, in the end, um, we did a lot of things wrong talking to them. We asked them a lot of questions. Some of them didn't turn out to be um, they didn't appear to be good questions because it was the first time we ever tried asking questions like this. For example, we asked what was a, the prime, what do they think the prime design objective was? This was to the tenants who didn't want to move back in. And the number one answer that we got back was the number one objective was no parking near the building. 
Um, which makes sense because Timothy McVeigh pulled his rental truck right up next to the building. The number two, um, the number two goal they thought should be close, convenient parking. And you, I hear those two together, and you think, well, you can't possibly solve this design problem. But in a way, that's the essence of it. And sometimes design is complex. Like actually, all the time, it's complex. The best design um, solution serves many, many, many problems. And so um, what sounded, in, 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 at least at the beginning, as sort of an, an enigma actually turned out to be the answer. It had to be convenient. Um, it had to be secure. Uh, it had to be welcoming. Mm. Sounds like being a good architect. Also, you need to be a good listener. Oh, you do. You do. But there's a difference between listening and doing, which was it, which is sort of what I mean um, when I say that we didn't know what were the right questions. It turned out the most valuable piece of um, that engagement wasn't people telling us what the building should look like or what the materials should be or how big their offices should be. The most important thing about that engagement was making them feel comfortable with the new building and getting their support for its success. And so, yes, it is listening. But the things you listen to are sometimes not what people, I mean, we're not asking people to design the building. We're asking them to join our effort to improve the environment. Yeah, Chuck talked about architecture and particularly federal architecture being a huge collaborative project. And it's not just the finished product that they're after, it's just the growth in the industry and how can public spaces be enhanced and be made to be better by getting a lot of really smart people together in a room to ask a lot of questions and really rub shoulders. Oh, that's about it. I mean, innovation is, is part of collaboration. But beyond that, I think that community engagement helps us have a, a shared purpose. Carol, when you think about as an architect with someone, your breadth of experience, when you think about federal buildings going forward in our nation, I'm curious what you think the challenges and what are the opportunities, particularly for federal buildings in America? Wow, it's really interesting because um, I'm teaching at IIT. I have been teaching there for 30 years now. Um, I love teaching. It keeps my brain free. And federal buildings are much different. In a way, um, they have to deal with the complex issues of our society. And there are a lot of complex issues. Um, so federal buildings of the future, I think, I think they're going to get their inspiration from, we were talking about the idea of manifesto, from our manifesto that we're created equal, that this is an open government where everybody contributes and uh, is expected to contribute. And so you can say, oh, Carol, you're just such an idealist. That's not what happens. That doesn't matter as long as you believe it can happen and you'll work to make it happen. So that, for me, is what federal buildings will have to represent in the future. And in that capacity, well, well, what will they be? First of all, they'll be sustainable because we can't, we can't ensure that, that our society, that our citizens will be safe unless we make buildings sustainable. I think that that's what, those will be the drivers for federal building, openness, equity, and sustainability. And in a way, they're the things we've been trying to achieve ever since our government, before our country was founded. Same stuff. Hopefully we're getting closer. Well, we certainly appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. This has been 
like I said, a privilege. So interesting, so much fun for us to listen to. And I think our listeners are going to love this conversation. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for what you've done for for the people of this country in your design, whether it be the Riverwalk in Chicago or a transit building or Oklahoma City Federal Building and so many other schools. Um, you are a gem. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. And that wraps up another episode of GSA Does That. A huge thank you to Chuck Hardy and Carol Ross Barney for their invaluable insights. It's clear that federal architecture isn't just about bricks and mortar. It's about the quality of our lives, our communities, and even our planet. If today's discussion sparked your curiosity or you have questions or topics you'd like us to explore in the future, don't hesitate to reach out. Our email address is gsadoesthat at gsa.gov. We love hearing from you, and your feedback helps us make this show even better. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out on the stories behind how GSA is changing the game in delivering effective and efficient government. And if you've learned something new today, consider sharing this episode with a friend or colleague. Every share helps grow our community and keeps the conversation going. I'm your host, Rob Trivia. Our executive producer is the one and only Max Stempora. GSA Does That is a production of the U.S. General Services Administration Office of Strategic Communication. 